0: Well, friends, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. The Gospel of Luke in chapter 24. We're going to be looking at this well known story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus with two of his disciples. This morning will be part one of the story as we reflect upon it, as we'll be reading verses 13 to 27. Well, before we read the Word of God together, let's seek our God in prayer and ask Him to give us understanding. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before You knowing that it is You who must illumine the truth by the power of Your Spirit that we would understand. And we pray that as we read Your Word that You would take us and make us wise. We pray that You would cause our hearts to rejoice in Your truth We pray that You would sanctify us by the word of life that You have given. And we pray that we would take to heart what You teach us. We thank You for the Scriptures. We thank You for being a God who makes Your will known to us. So Lord, give us ears that hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Again, we're in Luke 24, starting in verse... 13 on Resurrection Day. That very day, two of them, that is, two disciples, were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Well, this is God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. In our previous passage, we got the first good news of Jesus risen from the dead as the women went to the tomb. And there was a striking emphasis there on the centrality of God's Word because while the tomb is empty and angels were appearing and Jesus is alive, no believer has yet seen the Lord. In fact, if you remember, the women came expecting to find Jesus, that is, find His body, but He wasn't there. And suddenly the angels appeared with a rebuke and an explanation. Why do you seek the living one among the dead ones? And then came the explanation He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he told you. The angels, as messengers of the Lord, pointed not to the empirical evidence but to the Word of Christ, which establishes the truth of the resurrection. And that Word, the Word of God, should have set their expectations. It should have fortified them against despair. It should have directed their understanding. But they forgot the Word. But now the angels were building up their faith in the Word of Christ. Well, brethren, as we come to our text, to this most famous encounter on the road to Emmaus, Luke gives us in his account, the first resurrection appearance of Jesus. That is the first in Luke's account. Now, only in this story, the word itself remains central because these two travelers who are clearly disciples of Jesus are kept from recognizing Jesus. So while Jesus is appearing to them, they don't yet truly see Him. That will be next week. But it's another way that the Lord is Forcing us to focus on the testimony of Scripture above our own experience. Now, just as an aside, we should know, as will later come out in the account, that Jesus has already appeared three times before this Emmaus Road encounter on Resurrection Day. He appeared to Mary Magdalene, you can read about it in John 20. He appeared to certain women as they were going away from the tomb, you can read about that in Matthew 28. He also appeared to Peter. That will be discussed later in Luke 24 and also in 1 Corinthians 15. So while the Gospels are not attempting to give us a play-by-play of all that happened on resurrection morning, the biblical witness tells us this is now the fourth resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus. And as exciting as that is, it's not exciting yet in our encounter because of a lack of understanding of what Jesus is doing. Well, we're going to approach our text by seeing two things. First, I want you to see with me, shattered dreams with a touch of faith. Shattered dreams with a touch of faith. And this is in verse 13 to 24. Evidently, after hearing the idle tale... Of the women. You remember, it seemed to those who were listening to the women that they were saying an idle tale. It was the rantings of delirious women. We can't possibly trust them. In disbelief, these two disciples set off for a village called Emmaus. Now, these are not two apostles, but were among all the rest in verse 9 to whom the women had conveyed their testimony. One of them is named Cleopas but the other isn't named. And let me save you a significant amount of time by telling you, if you want to research this, that we don't know who the other person was. Was it Cleopas' wife? Was it Jesus' uncle? Was it someone else? I don't know. The Spirit has not conveyed that to us, and commentators throughout the centuries have spent oodles of pages trying to tell you what I just told you. We don't know. It's not crucial to the story, What is crucial to the story is that there are two, I think, probably men in discussion. Two men who start talking to Jesus, though they don't know it's Jesus. And two men who later report everything to the eleven. We'll hear about that next week. But Luke is conveying the Jewish principle of two witnesses. Let every matter be established on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Witnesses, You remember, he's writing to Theophilus that he might be certain of the things he's been taught. Well, he's saying, here is credible testimony and you should listen to it. Well, not believing the women, these guys start traveling the seven-mile trek to Emmaus, and we don't know where that was either. Probably a place that's barely a blip on the ancient map. That's not important. What's important is it's a real town that these people knew And the discussion that they had on the way is central. These guys were talking, verse 14, with each other about all these things that had happened. They're trying to make sense of what they've seen over the last few days. And apparently the discussion was quite vigorous. The second verb in verse 15, discussing, can carry the connotation of disputing. It was a lively conversation where faith is threatening to give way. Because they're seeking to grasp the things that they had seen in Jesus in the past and what it all means. Should they think more highly than they do of the women's report? Should they entertain hope at all? How are they to go on now? What are they supposed to do? And it's at this moment that we read in verse 15 that Jesus Himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. Now, there are a couple of principles I want us to note here before we move on. First, while it's obvious to us that these two disciples are not in a good spot spiritually, they're sad. Verse 17 makes that very explicit. They're full of doubts. It's as though their whole world has fallen apart and they don't know what to do but how do they handle the grief, the despair that they feel? They talk to one another. They don't bury their despondent feelings and go dark. You know, turning off their cell phone. They don't have cell phones. Putting away all communication. They don't refuse to speak. They try to figure things out and to cope with the grief together. Now that is a a crucial example to us. Of course, if Jesus didn't come to them in this situation and unpack the truth, they would have still been lost. Yet it should be noted in line with our attachment to one another that's later specified in the New Testament, that these are believers aiming to encourage one another Admonish one another, comfort one another, speak the truth to one another. They are unfolding their broken hearts before one another in conversation. And that is how God's people ought to conduct themselves in the church. When we're perplexed, doubting, losing hope, forgetting the facts, we need one another's conversation we need to convey our sadness to our brethren that they might help us are we willing to bear one another's burdens that's a command so you better be willing galatians 6 to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of christ are we acting like a body a people connected a people with mutual concern that's how we live in fellowship And that's how God's people are functioning here. Then notice also, as Jesus drew near, notice the emphatic language, Jesus Himself drew near, that He wasn't recognized. For the purposes of God, the Lord restrained their eyes. Now again, I'll save you a lot of time, don't try to find some naturalistic explanation. Jesus was wearing a cloak like a Jedi Master that covered His face. They couldn't quite see Him. It was foggy that day and that's why they couldn't see Him. Somehow His glorified body is a little bit different. That's not what the text says. The text says they were kept from recognizing Him. Surely this is a reminder to all of us that while we think we have total control of our faculties, we cannot see or hear or understand anything apart from the grace of God. God rules your senses, and He can open them or shut them as He sees fit if one is to recognize Jesus it won't be because that person has keen human insight we are all blind until amazing grace makes us see Christ must reveal himself to us but what I really want to point out here is Jesus's presence with these disciples while they're totally unaware of Jesus's presence One of the ironies of the whole situation reflected in verse 17 is when Jesus asks, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Jesus is asking them, He's stooping to ask them, to explain their hearts, to tell Him about all of their sorrows and the root of that sorrow being that Jesus is gone. But Jesus isn't gone. He's right there in their midst. And doesn't this remind us that there are seasons in the Christian life where everything seems dark to us and comfort is far away from us and that while Christ may be imperceptible to us, He's still there. We may traverse through terrible seasons where light and hope and peace seem like they've been squashed. However, brethren, when we feel far from the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean that we are. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, Psalm 34. The Lord does not forget the cry of the afflicted, Psalm 9. In all of our affliction, He is afflicted, Isaiah 63, Our God never leaves us or forsakes us. Hebrews 11. These things are true whether you perceive them to be true or not. And our comfort in our grief should be that here we notice God is not uncaring or distant or too busy to notice our heartbreak. Our sadness matters to the Lord. And He would bid us to tell Him our whole heart. As the sad disciples hear this initial inquiry into the subject of their conversation, Cleopas gives a bit of a sharp sharp reply. Verse 18, you notice how he puts it? Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Have you been living under a rock? Don't you know what's going on? How could you be so clueless? Nevertheless, Jesus encourages elaboration by saying, what things? In other words, do you see the heart of the Lord here? Tell me everything. Open your heart. Explain the situation. What condescension is in Jesus here? Jesus knows all the facts already, but he wants his followers to tell him about it. And, brethren, doesn't that convey something to us about the nature of our communion with Christ? Jesus is the near friend of the believer. He wants you to open your heart. He invites you to convey what you know, what disappoints you, what you understand, what you don't understand, and to act like He's a real person with whom you can freely converse. Do we do that in our relationship with the Lord? Do we hear the call of Christ to? draw near and to cast our cares upon Him, to tell Him everything? Do we speak to our God like He's listening? Because His eye is upon the righteous and His ear attentive to their cry. Well, in relating the facts, Jesus knows the faith these men had, though it's greatly faltering. He knows it's going to be evident. For one thing, it would take great courage for these guys to speak to a stranger about these matters. It's dangerous right now to be a follower of Jesus. The Sanhedrin had not only worked to have Jesus crucified, but they've indicated plainly by informing people in Jerusalem that if you have an association with Jesus, you're going to be disciplined. That is, you're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. Well, these two guys don't know the identity of this person, but they're still willing to take a risk and tell him. Why do they do that? Well, as will become obvious, their whole world revolves around Jesus. They must speak of Him. They can't be silent. The first words out of their mouths in explanation, verse 19, and they said to Him, and notice it's both of the disciples talking, they said to Him, it's not just Cleopas, but they said to Him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people. Now immediately as we read that statement, we know something is lacking here. They don't call Jesus Lord, Messiah, Son of God. They call Him a prophet. Nevertheless, the language used is similar to the ascriptions given to Moses. That He's a prophet mighty, in deed and word. They lack understanding, but at the same time, they do see Jesus as one sent from God. As a second Moses, we might say. And they're bold. For not only do they confess that the man Jesus who was just crucified, which means you got the curse of God, that He is a prophet, which is a staggering thing to affirm. The person who just got cursed is actually a prophet, which would suggest He's really not cursed. And they also lay the blame for this evil at the feet of the Jewish leaders. Verse 20, they explain how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. It's obvious that while Cleopas and his friend called the Jewish leaders our chief priests and rulers, that they recognized these leaders have done something wicked. What a dangerous thing to call out the wickedness of the Jewish leaders! They condemned a prophet. They work to crucify a man who glorified God, who is gifted by God. It's evident that these disciples are willing to associate themselves with Jesus and to distance themselves from the wickedness of the religious leaders. And while these fellows may have been hiding out previously, we don't know exactly what they did when Jesus was arrested, they are not cloaking their commitment here. There's real hope in Jesus here. Indeed, they add, verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's remnant language we saw early in Luke, waiting for the redemption to come to God's people. Now, clearly their hopes are hanging by a thread, but they're ready to embrace Jesus as Redeemer, as Savior, as a new Moses to work a new Exodus. So, what does Jesus' death say about all this? Well, they don't know how do they make sense of everything? And this is a more perplexing question because it's now, verse 21, the third day since these things have happened. That would suggest that not all hope has vanished. And the thought here seems to be in line with Jewish thinking that after three days, death is final. I don't think these guys are remembering the promise of Jesus about a third day resurrection. It's been pretty clear that no one is remembering the promise of Jesus about a third day resurrection. But they know that once three days are over, darkness has settled in and death is final. So the flickering hope that's there in Jesus would be extinguished. But hope isn't yet gone. Hope on life support is given a boost. In verses 22-24, to the women in our company amazed us with this report. The empty tomb, a vision of angels. Perhaps Jesus lives. A couple of apostles ran to the tomb, but Him... They did not see. Again, at this point, Cleopas and friend are saying, The jury's still out. We don't know what to think. And that's significant. The empty tomb, and even witnesses of the empty tomb, don't seal the deal. No one has seen Jesus. They're bewildered, unable to embrace the seemingly unbelievable truth that Christ lives apart from seeing Jesus. Now, their sadness with a touch of faith, this dimly burning hope, reminds us again that nobody's expecting the resurrection of Christ. If they expected it, the first report from the women would have set their souls on flame with excitement, and all of their sadness would go away. But these guys, along with the women and along with eleven, did not remember the Word of Christ. So they're trying to make sense of their world without interpreting it through the lens of Scripture. So while they ought to be rejoicing, they are sorrowful. They can't take the comfort offered to them because of the weakness of their faith. And this is a common symptom in us as well, isn't it? We fail to believe what we've been told and therefore we're sad when joy ought to be present. This is most often the case when severe trials come to us. We're commanded, we heard about it last week in Sunday school, to count it all joy when our God is working trials in us because we know He's doing what? He's refining us, perfecting us, disciplining us in love. But when we suffer, what happens to us? We forget the work of God. And all we can see is the blackness of the present moment so that God's Word doesn't rule and correct our feelings. We struggle to grasp what the Lord is doing. But this near hopelessness in our scene here adds credibility to the truth of the resurrection. Soon these guys and everyone else will be totally transformed and ready to die for the truth. The faith that flickers is about to receive a jolt. But before it does, let me raise one more matter. Even in their despair, it's clear that their lives are hanging on Jesus. They might be confused. They might be clouded with unbelief. They might be downcast. But if I can put it this way, Jesus is the sun in their solar system. And they live like He's central. Is that true of us? Even when we're perplexed that everything hangs on Jesus? Here is striking sadness with a touch of faith. But now I want you to see some striking words with a heap of Scripture. Point number two. After listening to all their hearts, Jesus says, Oh foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Note that interjection, oh, it indicates great emotion. And here it's grief at their unbelief and their foolishness, a failure to fix their heart on the Word of God grieves the Lord. We should note that. If we're slow to embrace what Scripture teaches, it does grieve the Lord. You see, they haven't lodged God's Word in their heart concerning the person and work of Christ. And we should note that knowledge, particular knowledge about Christ's work is necessary for salvation. There has to be an understanding of Jesus' suffering and Jesus' glory according to the Scriptures. That He really does die the death the believer deserves as a substitute. That He satisfies the justice of God. And He's raised to life for our justification. If we don't understand that, we haven't grasped who Christ is and what He has done. So these disciples are admonished for their ignorance Jesus chastises them with the words of verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Guys, you should know this. The Word of God and God's plan is clear. And while Jesus could have upbraided them for failing to believe the women, He didn't do that. And while He could have chastised them specifically for failing to believe what He told them, He didn't do that either. He chose to rebuke them for failing to believe the prophets. Just as an aside here, clearly Jesus is saying that the Old Testament is really, really important. And you can't understand Christ without knowing the Old Testament. Long before Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, explaining the work He was going to do in humiliation and exaltation, the prophets had spoken by God at many times and in various ways. And one might could understand the conclusion, or the sorry, the confusion, if these guys were hearing this stuff about a Messiah who would suffer and be glorified the first time when Jesus came, and no one had ever said any of this stuff before. But Jesus was only opening up the scriptures. He said what the prophets had been saying for hundreds of yea, thousands of years. So how could they have failed to believe the multi-voice, repeated confirmation of the prophets, both of the suffering of Christ and the glory of Christ? Did they not know the Bible at all? Well, yes, they went to synagogue and they heard the Bible read and proclaimed. But the failure here reminds us of a couple of things. One, the need for the Spirit of God to open our minds. We can have the Word read to us, preached to us, prayed over us, and we can still miss it entirely. Many of you will could note that in your own testimony. How many sermons did I hear? How many times did I hear truth? And it just I didn't get it. The spirit of God had to turn the lights on. And then second, it reminds us also how prone we are to read Scripture through our own bias or the bias present in our day, that is to read it with the cultural understanding of what people think right now. No one is embracing a suffering Messiah in the first century. It's why Peter had the audacity to rebuke Jesus for even talking about it. No one believes that, rather than actually read the Scriptures for what they're saying. And that remains a very real and present danger to all of us. We can get locked in to a defective reading of Scripture because the actual message of the Word doesn't sit well with our cultural sensibilities. We need to be extremely careful here. Is God's Word guiding our steps? Or is what the talking heads say about God's Word guiding our steps? What we need is not a bunch of so-called experts telling us how the Scripture fits with our current cultural perception. What we need is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, enabling us to discern the truth and show us where our culture is wrong. We need the Word of God, which gives us faith. And as we read the Word, we need to have a readiness to believe. We need to come to the Bible thinking... I'm probably wrong about how I see some things and be rebuked by Scripture. And we also need to pray that as the Word is preached, it's clear that the preached Word is not the Word of man with his opinions and ideas, but it's really the Word of God. Well, as we speak of preaching, we now read that Jesus preaches a sermon He corrects the folly of these disciples, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Oh, to have a record of that sermon. To hear the whole Old Testament related to the person and work of Christ taught by Christ Himself. Indeed, you may wonder why did the Spirit of God not record this sermon through a gospel writer? Well, I think one reason for that is because actually he did. If you read the Christ-focused sermons in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and Peter, the exhortation we're called Hebrews, they relate all the various promises of the Old Testament to Jesus seeing that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus. The rest of the New Testament is the Word of Christ showing us the things from Moses to the prophets concerning our Savior. And the preaching of the apostles, which was thorough, scriptural, explicitly Christ-centered, persuasive, and passionate, the model for that kind of preaching is found in Jesus Himself. Jesus isn't banishing unbelief with trite moralisms or ethics divorced from doctrine. He's explicitly engaged in doctrinal preaching that addresses from the Bible what He has done, who He is, and what it means for His people. He's giving them a lesson in Christology and how people are saved and what it all means from the Bible. And as I'm reminded as I think of this, of the doctrinal preaching of Jesus specifically, I'm reminded of J.C. Ryle's critique. You had to get a J.C. Ryle statement here. Of J.C. Ryle's critique in his day, where men were preaching, he's 19th century England, and they were preaching without enunciating distinct doctrine, but only telling people that Jesus is a great moral teacher and you must love one another. Ryle calls this failure to preach and to embrace distinct truths about Christ in his person and work, his suffering and glory seen from the Bible, he calls it jellyfish Christianity. A Christianity with no bones, no muscle, no assertions. He calls it the preaching of nothing Arians. He invented that word. They believe nothing. There's no content to save your soul. There's no failure that will send you to hell. That is not how Jesus is preaching. To fail to believe what Jesus is unfolding from the Scripture is foolish. And you will not come to your death and die in peace if you don't understand who Jesus is, what He has done, and rest your soul on it. He must be the suffering Savior who fulfilled Scripture, dying for our sins, paying our debts as the God-man, triumphing over the forces of darkness and His victory over the grave. And it's only as you embrace these truths from the Bible that you can come to your death and know death holds no sting for me. Now, I do think it's crucial to consider here what Jesus would have shown them concerning Himself. He begins with Moses. If you'll indulge me in a few more minutes in thinking this through. By the way, the resurrected Christ seems to know what the liberal scholars don't. That Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. That's Just an aside. What text did Jesus highlight? Well, we don't have the tape. We don't get a recording. But I do think a a little imagination here is not too dangerous. He probably began with Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman dealing a head blow to the serpent, i.e. there will be victory over the devil. However, the one who triumphs, who bruises the serpent's head is also bruised or crushed in his heel. That's the first statement of the suffering of Messiah. The Savior will be struck. Maybe Jesus pointed to Exodus 12, how the destroying angel passes over the people as the blood of the Lamb is on the doors. There's safety in the midst of judgment if you're marked with the blood, the sacrificial blood. So death will be necessary to save God's people from the judgment that they are due. There's Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. There's a death of sacrificial animals, a bull and a goat to cleanse but there's also the goat, we often call it the scapegoat, over which the sins of the people were confessed. And that goat is taken into the wilderness to be set free, picturing the carrying away of our sin, which is what the work of the servant Isaiah 53 will do. He will carry the sins of many. Jesus could have expounded the story in Numbers 21 with the serpent raised up on a pole, pierced to bring life, And if any person suffering under the penalty of sin looks to the raised serpent, he will look and live. It was this text that Jesus quoted to Nicodemus, just as Moses had lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus probably came to Deuteronomy 18 where Moses wrote that the Lord is going to raise up, Moses says, a prophet like me. Now, of course, being a prophet like Moses doesn't just mean communing with God and speaking the Word of God, I think it also implies suffering because how much did Moses suffer as he proclaimed God's Word to these stubborn people? We could go on to the former prophets. That's our historical books and read of David having a great son who will reign forever. We could hear in the latter prophets in Isaiah that this glorious king will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and He will reign on David's throne and there will be peace in an everlasting way. We could go back to the former prophets and read of the suffering of David and how it pictured the suffering of Christ. We can read in Isaiah, in the suffering of Jesus, particularly Isaiah 53, stricken, smitten my God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions and so forth. I think you're beginning to get the picture. We could go on and talk about the prophet Micah's word of a ruler born in Bethlehem, or Zechariah describing your king coming to you on a donkey's colt, or Hosea talking about Yahweh striking His people, and get this language, raising them on the third day, or the sword striking Yahweh's shepherd, Zechariah 13. There are so many texts that Jesus could have proclaimed as He unfolded the word to these men. But the key thing I want you to realize as we close is Jesus' method. Jesus could have made Himself publicly visible. He could have removed the hindrance, whatever it was, to keep these men from seeing Him. But He didn't do that first. He told them they were in spiritual confusion because they didn't believe the Scripture. And then He taught them the Scripture. In other words, as one puts it, at this point, it was more crucial for these two disciples to hear Christ than to see Christ. Jesus does not appeal to their eyes to build up their faith. He speaks to their hearts through their ears. And they must hear the Word. You remember, Luke is writing to people who haven't seen Jesus, and all they have is the Word. It echoes 1 Peter 1. Though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. And though you don't see Him now, you believe in Him. And your hearts have this joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is that true of us, brethren? Are we receiving the Word that we hear? The key to driving out these disciples' sadness is not a warm fuzzy-producing experience. The key for their spiritual growth is for them to understand the Scripture. So Jesus puts the Scripture before them. One of the largest problems with the church today is so simple to understand. You have taken the Bible away from the people. You're singing... Vacuous songs that aren't rooted in the word. You're not praying the word. You're not reading the word. And when you preach, it doesn't seem to be the word that you're proclaiming. That will destroy us. God's word is what we need. How do we know? Because that's what Jesus gives to these people, that's the medicine. When they're in doubt, when their faith is slipping, when they lack spiritual stability, He offers them the Word. Well, dear friend, if you're here this morning and your faith is slipping and you're locked up in doubt and you lack spiritual stability, what do you need? You need the Word of God declared to you. You need your face rubbed in the Scripture that you might come to know Christ through His Word. Well, brother, may we seek Christ in the Word. Because as Jesus once told the Jews, the Scriptures bear witness about Me. So if we're to know Christ, the means is to mind the Word of God for the wondrous things shown us about our Savior therein. Ignorance of the Scripture is the root of so many errors. May we not be ignorant. May we cling to the Word of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for recording for us by your Spirit this incredible encounter that Jesus had, though yet not recognized with these two men. And we thank you for the things that we learn from the passage. We thank you for the nearness of Christ, even when we can't perceive it. We thank you for the word of the Lord that testifies of Christ, who he is, what he would do, what it means for us. And we thank You that our hope is not extinguished because Jesus lives. Jesus has conquered. And Lord, may we believe, may we take Your Word to heart and be transformed by the truth that You convey to us. Lord, would You hear our prayers and would You transform us in the image of Your Son. For we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.